Oh, Father, as we come to your word today, we ask for humility. We ask for clarity. We ask for illumination, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the text for us and allow us to see the beauty of your grace in this chapter for the glory of Christ. Amen. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 28 today. If, uh, if you read the news or if you, if you watch movies, you can't help but notice the fact that there are a lot of stories out there about humble beginnings. And we, we all love stories about humble beginnings. There's a great new movie that recently came out about how McDonald's was founded from just this one little shack that was in Bakersfield, California. Pretty good movie. I understand there's some artistic license in there. But it's amazing to see how McDonald's went from this one little restaurant owned by two brothers to what it is today. Um, we, we love rags to riches stories. The story of Apple, uh, they're another one. They were started up in a garage, uh, as did Amazon, by the way, as I'm sure certain people in here uh, are very well aware. Hewlett Packard is another one. They didn't start up in a garage, but they started up with a, with a startup investment of only $538. Rags to riches, from, from, from humble beginnings to great, great things. And one of the beautiful things about the Christian journey is that we have humble beginnings as well. None of us has the exact same story. There are no cookie-cutter Christians. And yet I know that if we were to all share our stories of how God's grace has worked in our lives, where it began in our lives, nearly all of our stories would start with very, very humble beginnings. I know that for me, it started with me not wanting to go to church, really. I, I found an evangelical free church, and I thought, that's, that's great. I, I don't want to be around evangelicals. So I went, and I heard the gospel. And it amazes me as I look back on, on the attitudes that I had and just the person that I was at the time. And it's just amazing to realize that God would save a wretch like me. And that's what makes grace amazing, right? I wonder if that's what John Newton had in mind as he was writing the song. The 27th chapter of Genesis, the one that we covered last week, was one of the absolute lowest points in the book. It was, it was dismal. It was depressing. It was a chapter where every single person, all four characters that were, that were uh, portrayed in that chapter, were defying God. They were all opposing God. They were all doing things their way rather than doing things God's way. And the chapter gave us such a clear view of the type and, and, and the depth of the dysfunction that characterized even Isaac's household. We've seen Jacob swindle the birthright and the blessing from his brother. And of course, those things, as far as the culture was concerned, and apparently as far as Isaac was concerned as well, rightfully belonged to his twin brother Esau. But God had different plans. God had decreed, God had ordained that it would go to the younger of the two twins, that it would go to Jacob instead of going to Esau. The sovereign choice was God's. It wasn't mankind's choice, it was God's decision. It was His choice. It was His to give. Now if we were to fast forward to the end of Jacob's earthly life, 
And if we would see him as the great patriarch that he is at the end of his life, the great patriarch whose, whose 12 sons would lead the 12 tribes of Israel, we would probably never imagine somebody like him having a very humble beginning. And yet, at 77-ish years of age, he was just a swindling crook who was a mama's boy who had just swindled and cheated and schemed his way through life up to this point, and who had never ventured out on his own. He was attached to his mother at the hip in the, in the home. He was a tent dweller. His brother was a hunter. So up until this point, he's never been out in the wild. He's never been out on his own. He's 77 years old. And up until this point, there is no evidence to speak of that Jacob knew God, that he sought God, or that he cared about God. He was a most ungodly, most unrighteous wretch of a sinner who was really only looking out for his own best interests. So how did he become this great patriarch of the faith? Just like anybody else, there's this process that he had to go through. And this process for, for Jacob starts in chapter 28 where God's grace is freely given freely poured out on Jacob. As we begin today, I want to ask you to consider your life. To look at your life. To examine your life. Are you in a place where you're wondering if God's grace is enough to cover what you've done? Are you in a place where you're wondering if God is even capable of saving somebody like yourself given the sinful choices that you've made in life? Or maybe you're already walking with the Lord, but you're kind of casual about it. And you've kind of put your walk with the Lord on cruise control. You've grown complacent in your walk, and you need to have a new start, a fresh start, and a new beginning with God, but you're not sure how. Genesis chapter 28 is going to speak life-giving truth to both of these types of people. And the central point of our passage today, the central point of this chapter, is that it's only by the grace of God that we become aware of our need for God's grace. And God's grace is more than sufficient to meet us where we are and to lead us from where we are. So let's start with Genesis chapter 28, verses 1-5. to We read this. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. So having plotted and, and schemed and, and cheated against his father with his mother to steal the blessing from his twin brother Esau, Jacob has been forced to run for his life. He's a fugitive. He's in exile. He's, he's out on his own. Rebekah had told him in the previous chapter to flee to Laban, her brother, 
And Isaac goes along with the plan. Well, how did she get Isaac to go along with this plan? If you look at verse 46 of the previous chapter, Rebekah said, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. Speaking of the women that Esau had married. I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And Isaac hears her. And to avoid bitterness rising up in her heart, whatever, he sends him off. And remember, Esau marrying two daughters of the Hittites made life bitter in their household. Isaac wouldn't want Jacob to do the same thing. So Isaac instructs Jacob not to take a daughter of the Canaanites for his wife. And this, this is very good advice. This is, this is wise advice, even though maybe he was a little bit emotionally pushed into this decision. Maybe he was a little bit emotionally manipulated by Rebekah into giving this instruction to his son. It's, it's still wise, wise advice. And so he tells Jacob to go to the house of his uncle and to find a wife from among Laban's household. The defiant and the rebellious attitude that Isaac had toward God in the previous chapter is completely gone. It's, it's washed away. Isaac has repented. He's repented of doing things his way and taking matters into his hands when he should have just been trusting the Lord and doing things the Lord's way. He's repented. And his repentance is clearly seen in the way that he instructs and blesses Jacob. Now, Esau didn't repent. His, his response to, uh, to what happened in the previous chapter was to vow to kill his brother. Rebekah didn't repent, but Isaac did. And so as, as this chapter begins, as chapter 28 begins, Isaac is the only one who is now submitting to God. He unwillingly blessed Jacob in the previous chapter, but in this, in this chapter, in this passage, he clearly and very intentionally, very willfully submits his will to God and blesses Jacob. Now consider what he says in verses 3 and 4. He starts off by saying, God Almighty bless you. That's not a term that we've seen too many times, but it's the name of God that was originally revealed to Abraham. It's the way that God revealed Himself to Abraham back in chapter 17 when Abraham was still Abram. When he was 99 years of age and he was having a difficult time believing that God was actually going to be faithful to His promise to give an offspring to him and his wife now that they were beyond their childbearing years. So the name God Almighty, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, it's a reminder that God is all-powerful. That God is all-sovereign. That God can do whatever God wants to do. He's God. He calls the shots. He makes the rules. He can do whatever He wants because He alone is God. The will of God will be done. And isn't that the lesson that Isaac had learned in the previous chapter? He learned that God's will can't be thwarted. He learned that God's will is going to trump our will when our plans try to interfere with His plans. The fact that He uses this name, El Shaddai, in blessing Jacob shows us that Isaac has indeed repented, unlike Esau. If you think of the words of the psalmist in Psalm chapter 2, it's about the futility of plotting against God's will. Listen to what he says in the first four verses of this, this chapter. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. 
says this. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's thwart God's will. Let's thwart God's plans. Let's interfere. Let our will trump God's will. Verse 4. Here's God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What we need to understand is that God's will can't be thwarted. God's will is is like an anvil. It's there for our will to be conformed to. It's there for our will to be submitted to the same way that a metal sword is strengthened and made useful on the anvil. If the sword conforms to the anvil, it's good and useful. But to resist God's will not only makes us unuseful, but it's like beating a piece of wood. It's like beating a stick against the anvil. Who's going to win? The stick or the anvil? What's eventually going to happen? The stick isn't going to budge the anvil. No, the anvil is going to break the stick. And in the same way, our selfish will must be broken and conformed to God's will. To plot against or to, to plot around God's will is an exercise in sheer futility. We must not seek first our own interests, our self-interests, but we must seek first the kingdom of God. That's what we're instructed to do. We are instructed to submit every aspect of life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every desire, every goal, every ambition, submitting our will to His. So let me ask you today, are there areas of your life where you are refusing to submit your will to the Lord's? Is there a place in your life where you're refusing to conform? You're refusing to submit to God's perfect and holy will? What is it that you most treasure? What is it that you most desire in life? I ask because if there's something that you want, something that you pursue, something that you love more than God's will or more than God's way, you will eventually lose what you love the most. You must lose your life to find it. You must die to self to live. And it's only by putting to death the deeds and the desires of the flesh and conforming your will to God's will, that true treasure is gained. And that's exactly what Isaac finally does. He's repented. He's brought his will into alignment with God's holy and perfect will. He's realized that God's will can't be thwarted, so he's brought his will into conformity, into submission with God's will. And so he blesses Jacob. He sends him off with the blessing of his father Abraham to Jacob and to Jacob's descendants. Jacob is on the run. He's in exile. And so he heads off into the wilderness. He's, he's running for his life. He doesn't know if his brother's behind him or not, but he does know that his brother has vowed to kill him. So he's running for his life. This guy who, who would never even harm a fly. This guy who was just stuck to his mother's hip. Who's never had to survive on his own. He's out on his own. And as far as we know, the sin that Rebecca had in the previous chapter was so costly 
she never saw her favorite son again. In fact, as far as we know, uh, Jacob would never see either one of his parents ever again. He'd been so privileged up to this point. He had everything. He didn't want for anything. Abraham had been a rich man. Isaac had been a wealthy man. And all that they had would have been Jacob's. But now, at least from his perspective, he's got absolutely nothing except maybe, a, maybe an animal, maybe a, a camel or a horse, something to bring him through the wilderness. He's, he's got basically nothing. Nothing but his father's blessing as far as he's concerned. And we're going to come back to Jacob in a moment, but first, there's kind of a parenthetical passage here, a side note on what happened in the aftermath of this family blow-up that we saw in the previous chapter. So let's look, look at verses 6 to 9. It says, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that he blessed him and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father, and his mother had gone to Padan Aram. And when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So Esau had been defying God in the previous chapter as well. Just like everybody else that we saw in that chapter. But unlike Isaac, he didn't submit his will to God when he didn't get his way. Instead, he resolved to double his efforts, to triple his efforts. He, he vowed to kill Jacob. And what does that represent? That represents Esau still resolving to take matters into his own hands. He's still resolving to thwart God's will. That was his way of saying, you know, God may have defeated me this time, but we'll see what God can do to stop me from getting the blessing and the birthright when I take matters into my own hands and I murder my brother. What's God going to do then? That's what Esau's thinking. And we learn that Esau overhears what his father had said to Jacob about not taking a wife from the Canaanite daughters. And so for the first time, he realizes that his father was less than pleased about these two Hittite women that he had married a couple chapters ago that had caused so much bitterness and so much turmoil and so much dysfunction in the house. Finally, he, he realizes it. And so in this pathetic effort to gain his father's approval, he goes off and he takes a third wife. He takes a daughter of Ishmael, as his wife. He gets the idea that, okay, since his father has blessed Jacob, he doesn't have his father's blessing. Maybe he can just earn his father's approval. Maybe he could impress Isaac by taking a woman who wasn't a Hittite. Instead, he goes and he gets somebody who's from Abraham's lineage. And I'm convinced that this kind of side note, kind of parenthetical passage is written for us to reveal that Esau had some very, very deep hurts within himself. He, he needed to be loved. He needed to be accepted. And I'm not by any means saying that those are bad needs because we all have those needs. But those needs weren't being met. They're good needs. But Esau's sin, Esau's hard-heartedness, Esau's refusal to submit his will to God's blinds him from seeing what his needs are and what the solution to his deepest needs are. 
And so he tries to earn a love and earn an acceptance that's going to fail him because the love and acceptance that he's seeking is from an earthly father. And if, if, you, if you're around your father long enough, at some point, we disappoint our kids. We're not perfect. We're, we're earthly. We, we have a flesh nature that we're struggling with day in and day out too. But as we continue, we'll see that Jacob has the same needs. He, he has these needs too, but the love and the acceptance that he finds aren't from an earthly father. They're from a heavenly father. And the love and acceptance that the heavenly father gives him aren't earned. They can't be earned. It's entirely by grace, apart from works, apart from merit. So let's look at verses 10 and 11. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And when he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Let's stop there for a second just reflecting on, on what exactly, how significant this is. Because Beersheba was Jacob's home. This is, this is where he had peace. This is where he was able to, to rest at night. This is where he had an abundance of, of material goods because his father had an abundance of material goods. It was the place where Abraham had established peace, had established a covenant of peace with King Abimelech, and then Isaac did the same thing, established a, a covenant of peace with King Abimelech. So it was a peaceful place. It was a prosperous place that God had provided for them. Leaving that place had to be absolutely terrifying for this mama's boy. Think about it. You know, he, he's, he's the one who's stayed at home. He's the tent dweller. He's the one who was the swindler and didn't really work for a lot of things. He just swindled for everything. And his brother, his brother was much more equipped to handle something like this. His brother would have been fine out there. Esau was a skilled hunter who knew how to provide for himself. Jacob didn't. He didn't know how to provide for himself. So Jacob heads off, and he must have just been absolutely loathing his decision to swindle his father, to, to deceive his father, and to swindle his brother as he journeyed past sundown. He had to be thinking, man, what was the point of that? It wasn't worth losing everything. All, all this deception, all this sin, it was so, so pointless. And it was undoubtedly terribly burdensome to be so hated by your twin brother that he'd have to leave behind everything and everyone he had ever known. He is profoundly fearful at this point, and he's feeling profoundly alone for the first time in his life. But the truth is, he's not alone, is he? We know that as, as the readers. We know that because we know what the Bible says about God's omnipresence, right? We know all about that. But he feels like he's alone. And we've talked about that, how we might know something up here, but it doesn't always change the way we feel the way it should he feels like he's alone and if you looked around he'd say i am alone because there's nobody around but as the readers we know that god was there we know that god has plans in store for him we know that god has not abandoned him god has not forsaken him god is with him 
And so as we continue looking at Jacob's experience, I want you to remember that God is also for you. And that if you are in Christ, God is with you. God is radically, radically for you. And He's working in you. And it's all grace. You might be feeling isolated. You might be feeling frustrated with your circumstances in life. You might be feeling afraid. You you might be feeling unsure about the future. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're just tired. Maybe you're, you're just tired of trying. Maybe you feel cast aside and you wonder if anybody cares about you. And so I must remind you that if you are in Christ, God is not only with you, but He is radically for you. And God's grace is demonstrated in your weakness. God's grace is more than sufficient, more than enough for you. And He meets us wherever we are with an abundance of grace. So Jacob has schemed and and plotted and cheated and swindled his way through life, but he's all out of schemes and ploys at this point. There's nothing he could do. And it's while Jacob is fearful It's while Jacob is uncertain of the future. He's downcast. He feels rejected. He's isolated. And he's alone with with his head on a rock as a pillow that God's grace is poured out in abundance upon Jacob. Let's look at verses 12 to 15. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth Be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. We've all probably seen images or artwork of Jacob's ladder. The word that gets translated ladder is is unique. Uh, This is actually the only place in Scripture that it's found, and so translators have a a difficult time uh, knowing exactly what to do with it. But ladder works, as does stairway. Um, And so as Jacob's head is laying on this rock, he has a dream in which he sees this ladder or this stairway that leads up to heaven, that connects heaven and earth. And this is one of the most famous images in in all of Scripture. And he looks up and he sees that the Lord is standing above this ladder that connects heaven and earth. And Jacob sees angels ascending and, and descending on it. And as the Lord stands over it, he blesses Jacob. He's received his father's blessing, that's one thing, but now God blesses him. God makes promises to him. Now, I don't know about you, but what exactly would you expect God to say if you were in Jacob's shoes at this point? What would you have expected him to say? I think I might have expected him to say, Toby, you know, I'd love to do all this great stuff through you, 
but you're so duplicitous. You're so double-minded. You know, I, I planned on using you, but your ego keeps getting in the way, and so I'm, I'm going to have to find somebody else. But that's not the way God addresses Jacob. There's no reference to the fact that Jacob has spent his entire life defying God. There's no reference to the sins, the, the multitude of sins against God that Jacob has committed. He doesn't address him that way at all. He addresses him as a beloved son. Not even bringing up his sins. He speaks to Jacob as if Jacob has never done anything wrong. That's grace. That is beautiful, amazing grace. That is unmerited, unadulterated, pure grace. There are a few things that are very, very important for us to see in this passage. First of all, we have to understand that this is it is a dream, but it's also more than a dream. It's a what you would call a theophany. That is an appearance of God. God appears to Jacob. God really is speaking to Jacob here and making promises to Jacob. And so these promises that He makes, therefore, are binding. So it's, it's important that we realize that while this is taking place in a dream, it's much more than just any old dream. That's the first thing we have to see. Secondly, we have to see that God's grace, God's promises here are unconditional. God doesn't say to Jacob, listen here, Jake, all right, trust in me, and if you are able to to follow me, if you are able to walk with me, I'll provide for you, I'll prosper you, but only if you do your part. No, God says this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to bring you back to this land. No ifs. It's not contingent. It's unconditional. No strings attached. It's not conditional on anything that Jacob either does or doesn't do. This is the way God's grace works. Because if it were dependent, if it were contingent upon our faithfulness, your faithfulness, my faithfulness, it would be gone in our next breath because we've all perpetually failed at upholding the greatest commandment. Every single one of us. There's never been a time in our lives when we have loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not even one second. Jesus did. We've never matched Jesus' love for the Father. Anyone who thinks that they have upheld this, this first and greatest commandment is only fooling themselves. Because to believe that you've upheld it is to believe that you love God as much as humanly possible. As if you can't possibly improve. As if you can't possibly grow. As if you can't possibly become more like Jesus. No, we've all failed. And if it were up to our faithfulness, we would lose God's blessing in our next breath. It would be gone forever. We've all failed, and we all fail incessantly. But God's grace is given unconditionally. We've already read in Romans chapter 9 about how election is illustrated by Jacob and Esau. Paul writes this of God's unconditional grace in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 16. 
After talking about Jacob and Esau and how they demonstrate the principle of election, the doctrine of election, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Paul says this. This is very important. He says, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It doesn't depend on human will. God's grace isn't contingent upon human will or effort or achievement. And praise the Lord for that because if He did, we would have no hope of redemption. Because Scripture clearly testifies none seeks God. None does anything righteous. Nobody's good. Nobody seeks for God. Not even one. And this brings us to the third thing that we have to see about this passage. That Jacob didn't receive God's grace because he was looking for it. And he didn't receive God's grace because he'd done anything to earn it or to deserve it or to merit it. He wasn't looking for God. And he hadn't earned anything except wrath and judgment and condemnation. In fact, based on what we know about Jacob at this point, there might not have been a more wretched human being on the face of the earth at that time. He was this cheater perpetually. He was a perpetual cheater and swindler and and con artist. He was only looking out for his best interests always. And he was willing to deceive. He was willing to scheme not to get what God wanted, but to get what he wanted. So he deceived his own father. What kind of a person does that? Who who deceives their own father the way that Jacob did? He stabbed his own brother in the back. He's, He's a complete scoundrel. So why does God give Jacob grace when Esau's the one who who really hasn't done a whole lot of things wrong I mean yeah he hasn't exactly submitted himself to God's will but he's not the con artist he's not the swindler he's not the cheat that Jacob was so why does God choose Jacob instead of Esau because it pleased God because it pleased God to do so and God is sovereign now let's just be honest, if it were up to, to you or, or, or to me or to anyone to decide whom God should be showing mercy to here, we wouldn't have picked Jacob. I mean, we have laws. We, we have laws to, to throw people like him in jail, to protect us from people like Jacob. Jacob was a con artist. He's a, he's a cheat. He wasn't a good person. He wasn't seeking God. He didn't love God. He didn't worship God. But that didn't stop God's sovereign plan to bless the nations through the line of Jacob from moving forward, did it? It didn't thwart God's plans for one second. And so it starts with God revealing Himself to Jacob and making these unconditional promises to Jacob and to Jacob's offspring. And you remember the the needs of the heart that Esau had? Well, Jacob has needs too. And what we see here is that God has a unique way of meeting each one of those needs in the promises that he makes to Jacob. First, you know, maybe the, the greatest need that Jacob had was to know that he wasn't alone. And that need gets met. 
Because God lets him know that he is for him and that he's with him. He says, I'm with you and I will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to do. And it's unconditional. He doesn't doesn't say to Jacob, hey, you know, keep up. Walk with me. You come and walk with me, Jacob. That's not what he says. Because if that had been the case, Jacob would have been left all alone again in no time flat. No, this is the way God works with His people, with His children. And that's not to say that God is going to bless and prosper every work of our hands. No, it, it does imply that God will be with us, but sometimes that means He's going to discipline us to bring us into conformity with His will. He will never despise us. He'll discipline us, but He won't despise us. He will correct us, but He won't neglect us. So the first thing, the first need that God meets with these promises is that He will be with Jacob and He is for Jacob. Secondly, Jacob has nothing. He, he's, he's broke. From, from an earthly perspective, he, he's out of luck. I mean, the guy has his head on a rock. He's sleeping with his head on a rock. I, I mean, can it get worse than that? But God meets this need. He promises him, he, makes the, he reiterates the promise that he made to Abraham and to Isaac. His possessions may have been few from an earthly perspective, but he was rich in heaven. When he came to Laban's camp, he, he had no gifts to offer. You know, that was the custom at the time is when you go to a, a distant family member you, or, or anybody else, you bring gifts, and he had nothing except his own self, his, his own service to offer. So from an earthly perspective, he, he, he has nothing, but Jacob was rich with God's blessings. And the same can be said of you and me. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We're going to hear about it tonight. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that God has blessed His children with every heavenly blessing to the praise of His glorious grace. He has blessed It's not a future reality. It is a present reality for all who are in Christ, for all who are children of God by grace through faith in Christ. So wherever you are today, however close or however far you may have strayed from God, this is a reminder that God is able to meet you wherever you may be. Wherever you may be, whatever your life circumstances may be, He can meet you where you are and He can shower His blessings and His grace upon you. One way or another, God finds a way to confront us with His grace, often when we least expect it. What about you? Does your life testify to that truth? Have you come to the place where you you, you realize now or you've realized before that your greatest need is is to be made right with God. Your greatest need is for grace. Have you come to the point where you realize or realized that sin has a hold of you and that you're in, you're in bondage to your own will and you're unable to free yourself? Because if you've even come to the beginning of that realization in your mind, it's grace. It's grace. Grace is what allows us to see our need for grace. 
And so if you're ready, if, if, you're, if you're eager to turn from your sin, it's the grace of God that started a work in you. It's the grace of God that has opened the eyes of your heart to see your greatest need and to see the solution for that need. To repent and to believe in Christ. And so what about, you might be asking, what about if I'm, if I'm not ready to turn from my sin? What if I don't have that conviction? What if, what if I don't see that grace is my greatest need? Well, what are you going to do? Are, are you just going to go with it and sin incessantly? Are you just going to go on plotting and scheming for your own best interests? Just sin and hope for the best? What kind of a plan is that? No, if you're aware of the fact that you're not even wanting to turn from your sin, but you realize that you need to be wanting this, you need to be going to the Lord in prayer. You need to be begging God to help you learn how to hate your sin. That's a good prayer. God, teach me how to hate this sin. Please, God, help me hate this sin so that I can turn from it. Beg Him to do what He needs to do to wean you from your love for a particular sin. And by the way, that's a very dangerous prayer. So be ready if you, if you pray that. It's a dangerous prayer. Acknowledge the reality that you have sinned and that you continue to sin and beg God to be merciful to you. It's got to start somewhere. And with Jacob, it's, it started with this dream. He, he clearly understood the significance of this dream. How do we know that he understood the significance? Because he wakes up and he responds. Let's look at, at his response when he wakes up. Verses 16 to 22. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? There's... This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So he wakes up, and he, he realizes that this was not just any old dream. That this was a theophany. He, he literally saw God. God literally spoke to him. And his response is he says surely the lord is in this place and i didn't know it so where had the lord been all along right where jacob was where's the lord today right where you are wherever you are whatever your life circumstances god is with you today and Jacob realized not only that God was there, but that God could be Jacob's God too. He realized that, you know, he, he knew that God had been the God of Abraham, his, his grandfather. He knew that God was the God of Isaac, his father. But Jacob had never thought of God as being his God. He'd never 
wanted God for himself. He'd never sought God for himself. He never imagined God as his God. But now that's changed. Now that's changed. And what we see is that Jacob actually he gets up and he, he, he wants to respond, but he doesn't understand grace. Not yet. He doesn't understand grace yet. It's kind of a foreign language to him at this point that God is just going to do this for him. And there's nothing he can do to stop it. Jacob only understands merit. So he says something about uh, this being an awesome place uh, rather than talking about how awesome the God who is in this place was. He wakes up early. He pours oil on the rock that he had slept on. He says, this is going to be God's house. Um, that's what Bethel, uh, Bethel means. Bethel means house of God. Uh, and he, so he makes this conditional vow to God. He says, if, if God will do this, then he can be my God. And, uh, and this stone, this can be God's house. I'm just going to leave it right here as I go. I mean, it, it's really pretty comical if, if you think about it. All Jacob knew how to do was look out for his own best interests. All Jacob knew how to do was cheat. All he knew how to do was scheme and plot and ploy. When what he should have done is fall on his face and say, Worthy are you, O Lord, of all praise and honor and blessing. Whatever your will is, I I will conform my will to your will. I will do what, what he demands of me. So, Jacob has this kind of funny response. And it wasn't the best response by any means, but it was a response. It was a response. That's the important thing. The important thing is he did respond to God's grace. He didn't understand God's grace. But he responded to it, and God's grace met him where he was. It's important to realize the significance of this ladder or, or this staircase, however you want to translate it, that Jacob saw in his dream. Now, whenever you are, are interpreting Scripture, there are two questions that uh, you, you primarily want to be concerned with. Number one is, how did the original audience or the original person uh, understand this? And number two, what does the Bible have to say that might shape our interpretation of it? Now, there are some really crazy interpretations of what Jacob's ladder is out there. I mean, I, I, I don't know where they get it. They, they just come up with something as creative as they possibly can, I guess, some people. But, you know, asking these two questions, you know, what did the original audience, Jacob in this case, what did, how did he understand this? We don't know exactly how much he understood or, or, or didn't understand it, but we can be certain that what he saw is that there was a way to heaven. And God owned it. God was it. He saw that it was all God's grace. That the initiative was God's. God, it, it came down from heaven. It didn't come up from earth. It came down from heaven. And I think he understood at least that much. Asking the second question, what does Scripture say about a certain thing to help us shape our interpretation? Well, There was a time in Jesus' earthly ministry that's recorded in the first chapter of John when Philip came and and said to his friend Nathanael, he says, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
And Nathan, or Nathaniel, replies kind of, kind of sarcastically. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip, he keeps a straight face. He says, well, come and see. Good answer. Come, come and see. And we read in John chapter 1, verses 47 to 48, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Isn't that comical? He happened to know that he was talking about him when he said it's an Israelite with no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, how, how could Jesus have done that? How could Jesus have seen him in this isolated place, away from everybody else? Nathaniel's convinced that only God would have known that. And so it convinces him that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that he's the Messiah. Jesus goes on to say this in verses 50 and 51. He said, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On Jesus himself. See, Jesus knew supernaturally because he's God. He knew that Nathanael had been contemplating the meaning of Jacob's dream as he was under this fig tree. And so he simultaneously reveals his knowledge of Nathanael's thoughts and he interprets the meaning of Jacob's ladder. It's Jesus himself. Jesus himself is the one that Jacob saw. Jesus himself is the one that comes down from heaven and bridges the chasm between heaven and earth, between God, holy God, and fallen man. He's the one who bridges the gulf. He's the way to heaven. And he alone is the bridge to heaven. So the question I leave you with today is this. Have you come to the point where you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? Do you see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one and only mediator between holy God and fallen man? And that the blessings of heaven are found in Him alone. Whether you're alone, or frustrated, or fearful, or uncertain of the future, whatever the case may be, God's grace in Christ is abundant. And He's able to meet you wherever you are. If you've repented and placed saving faith in Christ, He has promised that He will never leave you or forsake you. And your response to His grace may be inadequate. Just like Jacob's. Jacob's response was, was pretty inadequate. But take God's promises to heart. And strive with every fiber of your being. Strive with every bit of willpower you have to live a life of praise and perpetual worship unto God. In light of the reality that if you are in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. He is with you. He is for you. And He's working within you. It's only by the unmerited, undeserved grace of God that we become aware of our need for God's grace. And His grace is demonstrated in our weakness. It's 
always more than sufficient to find us where we are and to lead us from where we are. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for being a God who is rich in mercy. We praise You for being a God who takes the initiative in showering grace because there's nothing within us that would have caused us to deserve Your grace. There's nothing within us that would cause us to even want or see the need for your grace. And so we thank you for it, Lord. We thank you that you found us wherever you may have found each one of us individually, and that by grace you opened our eyes to behold our greatest need, Christ. So we thank you for sending Christ to uphold the law and to live the perfect life that you demand, that you require and to die the death that we should have died. We thank you, Father, that you sent him to bear your holy and righteous wrath against our sin, and that in exchange you have clothed us in his righteousness. All of grace, all of grace, unmerited, unearned, undeserved. So teach us, O Lord, to live in light of these truths. Teach us to walk by grace, and we trust, Lord, that your work in us is not done, that you will be with us, that you will not leave or forsake us, and that your work in us will be completed. Until that day, uphold us and sustain us with your grace, that we may live and grow in Christ. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.